KRCL, Salt Lake City. Utah Community Action is one of the largest nonprofits fighting poverty and its causes in the state. To support or access their programs for adult education, case management and housing, Head Start, heat utility assistance, nutrition, and weatherization for homes, visit utahca.org. Support for Radioactive on KRCL comes from our sustaining members and Mark Miller Subaru. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists, community builders, punk rock farmers, and DIY creatives. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for plugging into your community tonight with me. Radioactive only on KRCL. Stick around. We're going to do Meet Your Maker with Eric Lowe, CEO and co-founder of Credo. It's a conversation actually about creativity and how he recognized he was being stifled in his day job and decided, I'm out of here. I'm going to do a startup, and he's got a playlist to match, so stick around for that. We're also going to talk with the Coalition of Religious Communities and Crossroads Urban Center's Bill Tibbetts, get a report about last week's action in the Hall of Governors at the Utah State Capitol, calling on lawmakers, calling on the governor for a special session to help, in particular, families with kids who need housing right now in our community and are being turned away due to lack of bed space at the family shelter in Salt Lake County. But first, rallies and resources. Wednesday this week, it's the Tanner Lecture on Human Values with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper. To reserve your ticket that doesn't cost you anything, we've got a link at Rallies and Resources under the Community Affairs tab at krcl.org. Also coming up in tandem with our conversation with Bill Tibbetts on Wednesday, November 23rd, the Wednesday right before Thanksgiving at Smith's Ballpark parking lot, it is Crossroads Urban Center's annual Thanksgiving giveaway. So if you need help with food this season, you can get a turkey and sides for your holiday meal. We'll put that in rallies and resources as well as the show notes, but you can get more information by going to Crossroads Urban Center's website. That's crossroadsurbancenter.org or find them under the same name on facebook.com. Again, that is Wednesday, the 23rd of November, 10 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. And now for a conversation about our children's mental health here in Utah that I recorded earlier today with Rebecca Dutson of the Children's Center of Utah. Governor Spencer Cox and his wife, First Lady Abby Cox, in partnership with the Children's Center Utah and the Kemsey Gardner Policy Institute, are presenting the third annual Ready Resilient Utah Early Childhood Mental Health Summit on November 17th this week. It's virtual from 9 to 11 a.m. And joining me to talk about it, we have Rebecca Dutson from the Children's Center Utah. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. So since we spoke about this event, I believe this time last year, what has changed? What are the new concerns when it comes to early childhood mental health here in Utah? Well, as you can imagine, um, at this moment in time, we're continuing to see the effects of the pandemic. And so I can't really say that a lot has changed other than um, all of the things that have been building up during that time are really coming forward. And we're seeing that in the families and the children who are coming here for support and help. And remind our listeners about the work you do at your nonprofit and how, how vital it is to our community's overall well-being. You bet. So the Children's Center Utah provides mental health treatment to infants, toddlers, preschoolers, and their families. And that evidence-based trauma-informed care is really focused on helping improve the emotional well-being of that child and, and their family and caregivers. So who should attend this virtual summit on Thursday? We invite all who are interested in early childhood. Um, we have many educators who attend, people who are providing preschool and childcare services throughout the state, as well as clinicians and pediatricians. We also have a lot of community leaders who attend and our state leadership as well. I understand there'll be an update, a progress report from the Utah Early Childhood Mental Health Working Group. But your keynote speaker sounds really interesting too. Jessica Price, a research professor at Florida State University. Can you tell us a little bit about what she'll be addressing? She has such terrific experience in the child welfare system. 
um, as a whole. She'll be focusing her remarks really in on racial disparity, um, anti-poverty practices, and helping us think about how we work together as a state to better serve the mental health concerns of our state's youngest and their families. Thanks, Rebecca. Laura, it's always our pleasure. We're grateful and we just appreciate your support. And that is Rebecca Dutson of the Children's Center Utah, a nonprofit that provides comprehensive medical health care to enhance the emotional well-being of infants, toddlers, preschoolers, and their families. That event is November 17th. It's online. No ticket necessary, but you do need to register for a seat in the webinar. And I'll put that link in tonight's show notes as well as on the Rallies and Resources page of krcl.org. Something I wanted to shine a spotlight on is the expansion of Interstate 15. UDOT is holding some public open houses and Sweet Streets SLC will be on the show later this week to talk about the plan and their concerns. But uh, right now there's a virtual meeting going on. And then tomorrow night, 5 to 7, 15, 5 to 7 at Rose Park Elementary. And then on the 16th, 5 to 7 p.m. South Davis Recreation Center. More details at i15eis.utah.udot.utah.gov. I'll put all that in the show notes and rallies and resources as well. But let me try that one more time, i15eis.udot.utah.gov. And now we turn to Bill Tibbetts, Crossroads Urban Center and the Coalition of Religious Communities. Hey, Bill, how you doing? Doing good. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for coming back. We had you on last week to shout out that you're going to have this press conference, uh, first a Zoom conference, and then a rally or or um, get out the word experience at the Hall of Governors at the Capitol. I want to hear about all that. But uh, first of all, I've got a clip from your Zoom last week with uh, the Reverend A.J. Bush of First United Methodist Church in downtown Salt Lake City talking about what she sees around the church when it comes to homelessness in Salt Lake as we speak. Here we go. My name is Pastor A.J. Bush. I pastor Centenary United Methodist Church and First United Methodist Church in Salt Lake City. And First United Methodist Church is located right downtown. And so we have a lot of neighbors and friends who are out on the streets. And it was interesting to me, I had a friend recently visiting from another part of the country and I was showing her around my church, showing her around my neighborhood. And one of the things that she noticed, one of the first things she noticed was that there were a lot of people who were living on the streets, more people than she sees in her own community. And so the reality is that right here in Salt Lake, that homelessness is a visible issue. That homelessness is a very real crisis that is happening on our streets, to our neighbors, to our friends. And it is bad enough that we have adults that are out on the street, but I was shocked to learn that over 70 families, families with young kids and children were unable to find shelter right here in our community. And we know that children cannot provide for themselves, but children are reliant upon us, upon the community to surround them and to protect them. And as Laura said, every single child is a person of value and of worth. And we as a community must provide the resources, the funding, the support to protect those children. Now, I know that one of the things that often gets said in conversations like this is that, well, there's just not enough resources to go around. There's not a way that we can respond to this issue. But as a person of faith, I believe that there is enough resources, that creation, that the world has provided enough resources, but that scarcity comes when we misuse those resources. Scarcity comes when we take funding away from families and give it instead to incentives for developers. Scarcity comes when we take funding away from affordable housing, when we know the need is great. And scarcity comes when we hoard our resources for ourselves instead of making sure that everyone has what they need. I do believe that we can meet these needs, that we don't have to live from a place of scarcity, but we can live from a place of abundance so that every single person has those basic human rights of food and shelter and protection. And so I call on Governor Cox and on our legislate, legislators to call this special session to address this problem. Because not only do we want to protect families 
this winter. We want to protect families next winter and the winter after that. So please see this as the crisis that it is and call this special session. Thank you. And that is the Reverend A.J. Bush of First United Methodist in downtown Salt Lake City speaking during a Zoom conference last week to draw attention to what's going on with emergency shelter or what isn't. And Bill Tibbetts is here as part of the Coalition of Religious Communities out of Crossroads Urban Center. And that uh, Zoom conference last week was coordinated by them. So, Bill, you then followed it up on Thursday, I believe it was, with that Hall of Governors press conference. Yes. Um, and I'm kind of curious, did some lawmakers come? of both particular political persuasions? I, um, we had four members of the Senate come. They were all, actually, we had one member of the Senate, Senator Luzia Escamilla, and then three senators-elect, so people who okay. will be in the Senate when the session begins, but who were now, um, they've won their election, but they haven't been uh, appointed, and they haven't been sworn into the seat yet, and so we had, uh, uh, when they were, and so the other three, they were also they're the new Democrats. Mm-hmm. So we had four of the five members of the of the Democratic caucus, which, which shrunk in these latest elections. Yeah, well, and, and the House, the the caucus got smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the, uh, you know, there are t- only twenty nine seats in the Senate, and so mm-hmm. having a, a block of uh, four, and. Uh, Senators show up and so support is, is really good. I also think, I mean, this is a Salt Lake County issue and they and they were they're a large share of, yeah. the, of the represent of the senators from the Salt Lake County. So we've spent a lot of time in this community over the last I don't know how many years trying to pound down the message that is not just Salt Lake City. So I'm a little disappointed that other lawmakers uh, didn't attend. But one of the things that really st- stuck out to me in the Tribune's coverage of your events was the governor's response to your call for a special session. And I'm quoting from a story November 10th in Salt Lake Tribune, where he said, and in a release they quoted him, the state has ample funding for hotel motel vouchers, but currently there just aren't enough rooms or caseworkers to accommodate these needs. The challenges wouldn't be fixed by a legislative special session. Do you agree? Uh, I strongly disagree. I, the There are enough motel rooms. We have had used more vouchers very recently, so that's not, um, that's just not the case that there's a shortage of motel rooms. It's also not the case. I mean, when you say we need more caseworkers, how many more caseworkers do we need? One, two? I mean, it's not, it is not an insurmountable problem. Um, and caseworkers also cost money. Mm-hmm. And um, the last, I've heard officially there's still only funding for 10 motel vouchers a week, and there were 78 families that were turned away from the family from the Midvale family shelter back in, in, in September alone. And so clearly there's not, if there's enough uh, money for vouchers to, to meet the need for 80 families, um, I haven't seen, haven't seen, haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and... I mean, I haven't heard anybody say that there's a shortage of motel rooms. I, I think um, in our in our webinar, Senator Escamilla came in and she had the idea, well, why don't we just rent a whole motel like we did during the pandemic? And I think we could. Um, you know, the, and but, you know, the, the, the problem with renting a, well, I mean, it, it's, there's more than one way to solve the problem. Um, and if the issue is hiring caseworkers, then you know that that you need to give the money to the people who would hire them and let them start the process of trying to find people. You can't say, "Oh, um, you know, money won't solve the problem if the people who need to hire the caseworkers don't have the money to to do the hiring." Right? I mean, that's yeah. uh, kind of of a circular. It, it becomes a circle, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's not enough caseworkers to use the vouchers, and so we, we're not going to fund the caseworkers. And so it just ends up becoming a, a how quick can we get to know. Another interesting development as you were doing these these calls to state lawmakers and the governor was the Utah Senate Majority Caucus leadership team put out their 2023 session priorities, increase teacher salaries, find a long-term solution to Utah's water crisis, 
cut taxes to offset rising inflation caused by the federal government's overspending, keep Utah's economy and thriving business community the best in the nation, sustain Utah's great quality of life. That's really rosy. I don't see, hear anything about poverty in Utah, living wage, housing, and the homeless when temperatures are as cold as they are right now. I, I think a great place to start with for improving the quality of life would make sure that there aren't any kids sleeping in cars this winter. I think, um, you know, hearing about the the uh, the presentation on on or the 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 forum on on ch- children's mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, there are, are countless studies about the impact of homelessness on physical and mental health for children, the long-term impacts. It's, um, it really, there, it's, it is a traumatic thing to be a kid and not know where you're gonna sleep, to be a kid and not know, I mean, and to be really cold all night. Yeah. Um, these, are, these are things, I mean, and, and that kids, that are really traumatic for kids. And so it's really, I mean, you wanna improve quality of life? Well, let's start with the people who have the, have the worst quality of life. Yeah. And you had a, a young family attend your um, Hall of Governors press conference and reveal their story and what they're going through. It's not an isolated case, unfortunately. As you said, 78 families in September alone turned away. What are you hearing today about the number of families in need? Um, we're still waiting for updated numbers for October, and, and uh, but I know that there's there are continuing to be families turned away right now, um, and that there are conversations about how can we find safe places for families to camp, or to park their cars and and and, and not be bothered. Um, and that's just I mean it's so cold. It's, that's just not I mean it may it's a it, it can, can't be anything but a very short-term solution. Yeah. We have a lot of churches across Utah, in particular in Salt Lake County, um, from LDS to First United Methodist to Baptist to Evangelical to Lutheran. Is there a role for the coalition of religious communities to step up and say, how many can we put in our place at night? I don't know if that's been discussed, if it's ever been tried. What do you think? Well, there's an organization that does that called Family Promise, and they do uh, put families in up in in, in churches, and uh, they they match they, them with congregants sometimes too, right? They um, not right now. No, they they just put them in. They just house them in churches mm-hmm. right now, okay. families, and um, but. Um, you know that's a it's a pretty small program. I don't know how much it could be expanded. I, I know it's um, it takes more volunteers than you would think, and I I mean it's uh, the uh, it usually it ends up being the case where like one church will host, and then neighboring churches will help with the volunteers so to, to have the food to have people who spend the night at the at the church with the family. As a host and. And also the accommodations that you need to put into yeah. a house of worship as opposed to a hotel. Yeah. So what is your what is your call now to not just the lawmakers and the governor, but folks listening to this about what they can do to help on this issue? Um, you know, I, I think that it, it we're in a moment where it's it's not entirely clear what what is needed to be done. I think uh, we did hear uh, from the governor's point person on on homelessness, Wayne Niederhauser, that they are working on a plan and that the details will be available soon. And you know, soon is one of those words that can mean a lot of different things. When the pro- temperature's dropping tonight. Yeah. Now I I think um, I think it's good that we've got the governor's attention. It's good that his people are working on a, on a plan and that they're looking for resources for addressing this problem. I, I think we can get enough motel vouchers. I think we can hire the one or two caseworkers we need to make the program work. I think, uh, I think we, as a state, absolutely can buy a motel to convert into a second family shelter um, so that we aren't having this problem next year. Um, but I, I think the risk, I mean, it's, you read, 
I don't know if he meant it this way, but when you read the statement from the governor in, in the Tribune, it really sounds like he's trying to brush the issue off, like, oh, this is being dealt with. And I, I don't, that's just not, that's not how we would respond to another type of emergency. He wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that, that was a flood, you know, in uh, wherever. I mean, in, 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 uh, but, you know, that's being dealt with. He would he'd actually be down there probably with sandbags. I mean, it's, it's not, um, I think, and I don't think that he's, his response is not, hey, I, I'm engaged with this. This is, I'm working to solve this. It was, oh, you know, it's, it's not really a problem. It feels like a symptom of how we treat this problem, which is a, a bit of a hot potato. Um, it's uh, uh, Salt Lake City Mayor Aaron Mendenhall has worked very hard to engage fellow mayors at the city level, at the county level, but also lawmakers like, hey, this is a Utah problem, not right. just the capital city problem. And um, it, 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 it's, it's an intractable problem, it feels like. As the Bible says, the poor will all be, always be among us. Okay, what is the quality of mercy? It's how we treat the least among us. Oh, I just went on my religious uh, soapbox there, Bill. But um, I really do think what we spend our money on shows what we care about. And um, we could spend more money on this issue. We've got American Recovery Plan money, right? We, there, are still, there are still funds that we, um, I mean, we stock like a billion dollars of Recovery Act funds into um, the transportation fund, on a pr like undedicated. So we, the money could be taken from there. There um, are some other funds from that, that act that are still undedicated that could be used for this. Um, we have a $2 billion state budget surplus, so there's certainly plenty of state money that could be used to address this, this problem. I, I think um, it really is. It is a question of priorities. It's a question of values. And I, I, think, um, I think that the, the risk, the reason that we are so concerned about it is that five years ago, I mean, there were, I think when, the, when we did the point in time count, there were just a couple hundred unsheltered homeless people that we found on, you know, on, on a winter day in January um, because, ev you know, the most shelter-resistant people will go in when it gets that cold, will go inside. And I think, um, you know, this is potentially going to be the first winter where we have a significant number of, where we find a significant un number of unsheltered families with kids. And I, I think the problem is, is that in the years since that that was like under 200, I mean, it's it's now over a thousand people that we find outside, and what happened? You know, how how many? We can't let that happen with families with kids. We cannot be. We've become complacent about seeing adults sleeping in the snow, and that's a shame on on us. But I think to become complacent about infants, about toddlers, um, that that makes our community a less compassionate place than it was in the past. Crossroads Urban Center has its annual Thanksgiving giveaway. Let's talk about that briefly, coming up on the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving, it, it's, uh, it's we during the pandemic, we discovered that you can do a Thanksgiving giveaway in a drive-through setting, and that actually the people most people like that better. We have a walk-up option for people who don't have cars. It's right by a track station, so you don't have to have a car to participate. But um, it is really easy. We've learned to make the the line move quickly, so you won't be in the in the parking lot forever. I, I um, do you have to sign up in advance or no? Just show you up? no, just show up. It is. Uh, it's we uh, you know believe that that. Uh, I mean, we, we've been doing this for a long time, and, and I think people who are willing to stand in line for a turkey um, usually need one, and um, it's a, we, you know, again, I mean, you, if, when you talk to people in line at this event, you're, the stories you hear are, I mean, there, there's, there are definitely families in need, and I, I think that, uh, I mean, with our food pantry serving 75% more people this year, we're expecting that we will give away 3,000 to 3,500 turkeys. Wow. 
Yeah. So this is Wednesday, November 23rd. Starts at 10 a.m. while supplies last at the Smith's Ballpark parking lot, 1300 South and 77 West. So we're talking, uh, yeah, at that intersection. Uh, you, you can walk up as well. We'll put details in the show notes. But uh, if you drive up, you just pop the trunk and folks put a turkey and some sides in the back. If you walk up, they'll hook you up as well. And again, track station right there. What's the website where people can learn more about this, but also get involved with the Coalition of Religious Communities and Powerful Moms for Change who are working on this issue to draw attention to homeless families with kids this winter. You can find more about all those things at, cross, at our website, crossroad, www.crossroadsurbancenter.org. Thanks for coming down. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Coming up, we're going to talk with Eric Lowe from Credo, and it's a Meet Your Maker session about creativity. Off of his playlist, it's the Black Angels, El Jardin on KRCL. Support for KRCL comes from Mark Miller Subaru and the Subaru Love Promise, a partnership with local nonprofit organizations to support and strengthen our community. Now accepting applications for 2023 nonprofit partnerships. More information on Mark Miller Subaru's Love Promise and application process at markmillersubaru.com. Support for KRCL comes from the Utah Farm and Food Conference, January 12th to 14th in Cedar City, where more than 200 attendees will gather to learn and network about the agrihood, from small to urban farms and artisan producers to those who support them. For tickets and conference schedule, visit utahfarmconference.org. KRCL is turning 43 and we're inviting you to come out and celebrate the station's anniversary with us at our first ever Holiday Soul Party on December 3rd at the Commonwealth Room in Salt Lake City. KRCL DJs, photo booth, food truck, and live music with Ryan Innes, AM Bump, and the Omega Horns with a special VIP soul set with me, eBay Hamilton. So come on out and celebrate 43 years of community radio with a night full of feel-good soul music and all your favorite radio friends here at KRCL. That's Saturday, December 3rd at the Commonwealth Room. Get your tickets now at krcl.org. And those tickets are going, I'm hearing, folks. I'm Laura Jones. You're listening to Radioactive. Thanks for plugging into your community tonight with me. Coming up at 7 o'clock, it's Democracy Now!, followed by Red, White, and Blues with Brian Kelm, Night Train with Michelle Tanner at 10.30, and then John Florence starts off your brand new day at 6 a.m. If you miss a show, you can hear it on demand for the next two weeks. Just go to krcl.org, click the Programs tab to find the on-demand service that is possible because of listeners like you donating at krcl.org. All right, it's time to meet your maker, and I've got an interesting guest to introduce you to. He's uh, actually a plant tech startup guy, but I just found out he's also a musician and has a recording studio audio in. Please welcome to the program Eric Lowe, CEO and co-founder of Credo Inc. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me on. So we did like a pre-interview last week and you didn't even mention the whole music angle. So I'm really glad I want to dig into that. But what's your origin story? Introduce yourself how you would like to our listeners, where you come from and how you get into tech. But then we got to get to the music, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I'm a Salt Lake native. Um, I grew up, um, you know, I'm a first gen immigrant, grew up here in Utah. Um, and yeah, I've stayed here and I'm still here. Um, and my journey to where I am today is kind of a long, windy road, which I think a lot of people forget to showcase, but that is yeah. really how it ends. And, you know, um, you know, I'm 35 and here I am today and, uh, and just through a cumulative bunch of experiences, yeah. everything from playing, you know, being a classically trained pianist since I was five to, uh, being music, being really big part of my life, to being um, raised with Asian parents and told, you know, you only have a couple of choices of careers to do in life. Okay, what were they for you? Uh, you know, it's the doctor, pharmacy, lawyer, engineer, um, and even engineer wasn't an option. So it was really the only the three. And then I was decided, like, oh, if I'm going to be a pharmacist, I might as well just take two more classes and be a doctor. Okay. Um, and it wasn't until um, I was interviewing to go to medical school that I was really sitting there going, what am I doing? Like everyone around me seems way more into this than I am. I'm literally making up a story of why I want to be a doctor. Uh, probably not a good start to <laughs> a career being a physician. And so, um, and then at that time, 
I met my wife today, uh, Mary, and she was like, what would you be passionate about? I'm like, I love music. And she's like, why don't you go be a musician? And I was like, yeah, let's go be a musician. Um, and so I did that for a good chunk of life. Um, and there's a Mary in here smiling yeah. next to you. Is that uh-huh. okay? That's, that's there it. Go. That's Hi, Mary. The one. Yeah, she streaming was my live too. Parents' favorite, right? Going from <laughs> a medical career path to a musician career path. Um, but what it really did was that was the first time in my life where I actually sat down and asked, "What am I really into? Yeah. What do I care about?" And you know, along the way, there were a lot of things I was good at. Um, and, you know, when you're good at things, it brings a sense of fulfillment and passion to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I found myself being really good at in a research lab as a research scientist. Um, but I really have this hard time hopping through hoops, going through things because people are telling me to do it. Um, well, have you shake off your parents' plan for you? Yeah, yep. It's kind of hard to let anybody else tell you that. Exactly. Yep. And so, you know, the... the um, opportunity was offered to get a PhD and I'm just like I'm sitting here watching people with PhDs and no thanks well let's talk about that we don't have to name the company you previously worked for but not having the PhD after you became a hamstring to what you were allowed to do versus what you were interested in can you talk about a bit about the struggle sure yeah I think that you know happens quite a bit in life right where a group of people decide to go through a traditional avenue um, like getting a college degree and then and then using that as like a gatekeeping mechanism of I went through this I struggled so you can only know as much as I know mm-hmm. if you went through that same path there's no other path here and no one else knows anything that doesn't have this with us yeah and I see this a lot right I see a lot of people get discounted because they don't have a science background but mm-hmm. they are avid researchers and readers and for me it's like well Let's give them some time. Let's listen to what they have to say, right? Um, you know, isn't the core tenet of science to be, you know, until your thesis is proven wrong, like, or proven right, like, we yeah. don't know. Um, and so that's what I, you know, um, and so for me, it's always been a conscious friction, right, of, um, you know, and I probably sometimes fall into that bias too of yeah. gatekeeping because, like, uh, you know, you had to get – you. You had to take the time to get to where you are, right? Yeah. Um, and there are no shortcuts. Um, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. So without that PhD, it did limit my lot in life um, in terms of in the scientific field and community. Was it did it limit in terms of what you could do or what you could get credit for? Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, well, it was mostly what I get credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you could do, they'd be happy to pay you half the salary of someone with a PhD and you can do the exact same job. Um, And there's no no problems with that. Um, But yeah, then when the credit comes, that's where you get no credit. um, And that's where you get, um, and that's where you also are not really listened to. Um, yeah, so your I, ideas, your creativity. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of them were either discounted or stolen eventually mm. um, by someone with those three letters. And all of a sudden, that's the greatest idea. And you're like, didn't I just tell you that idea like two <laughs> days ago and everyone shot that down? I think everybody can relate to that uh, at some point or another. So you were working for this, this pretty big biotech company in, in town. And you were seeing gaps in how they approach things in terms of systems within the company. Absolutely, yeah. I think, you know... Um, and that was what I really saw, right? With people with doctor degrees, um, they were missing another key piece, and that was utilizing technology. Mm-hmm. And so, so much of our work is done on tools like Excel, which it really shouldn't be. You're talking spreadsheets. Yeah, spreadsheets, right. That's how we're doing deep, heavy scientific research is on spreadsheets and with macros. And, um, and you, you know, I don't have to go into deep yeah. into why why that's not a good plan of attack. It's the only plan of attack, Yeah, right? or idea. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, I'm hyper curious and I love technology. You know, my heroes, you know, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, those guys, watching them create something that everyone mocked and thought was silly, right? The yeah. internet, connected computers, and, you know, that's what it is today. It's in our pockets. Um, but even more so than all of that was um, that technology component and how it's more of a tool and not a um, lifestyle or you know it's so for me it was like oh well like that's what software is good at that's what computers are good at is I can't keep going through 10,000 and whatever number cell I'm on and checking if this is right Mm -hmm. 
I'm pretty sure I missed something. <laughs> There's a cell that I missed, and mm -hmm. that's what's going to now fail these results because we have no way to double check all this mm -hmm. when I can easily learn how to program, write a couple lines of code, and they'll tell me if this passed or failed, and I don't even have to like worry about it. So you're writing code at this point, sounds like, in your career. Yeah, so I'm writing code, or I'm trying to write code, right? So I try to be a self-taught uh, programmer, and um, then I found myself really just being stuck in the same part where um, I couldn't get past it. And so this is actually where I went back to school, where I did need that forced discipline that I'm used to, and it got me through it. Um, and then really quickly, what I wanted to build was a essentially bioinformatics team at this company that combined the science and the software engineering. Um, but I was told, right, oh, that's what the software engineering group does. So just and go down there. And you're not in that group. Yeah, well, just go down there, join them. And so I did. Mm -hmm. And then I found out that it was all full of gamers uh, and no scientists. <laughs> they and hired a bunch of gamers and no scientists. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, do you guys even know what we do at this company? Like, yeah. do you even know what these terms mean? And they're like, no. I'm like, how are you building any of these products? And they're just like, oh, someone just tells me what to write, and I write it. And and that blew my mind was, here I am within this company, literally went from one floor down to the other, and there's this huge disconnect between the two domains. Yeah. And I really found myself uh, one of the few individuals that could speak both languages, mm -hmm. and I saw immense value in that. Um, and that's when that, I- That seems like it'd be a left brain, right brain, brain disconnect. Is, would that be accurate? Absolutely, and this is where, you know, I love, and this is where I'm a big proponent of STEAM versus STEM, right? We keep leaving out the most important part of all of this, and that's the arts, the creativity. And for me, it's always been, even when I was in academia, biotech, no matter what industry I was in, for me, it was always like, how can we innovate? How can we see the future without creativity? Yeah. And it's all just database, or not database, data-driven. Like, how, how can you do, how can you break the lines that have been drawn? And, and to me, that's always been like, it's impossible. You can't. You have to be, like, the creative is most almost more important than the logic. Like, yeah, make sure the data is driving your um, thesis, but without the creativity, how can you even think yeah. of what's not there? Well, when we come back, we're gonna talk about where that leads you next. I also wanna hear about your musical upbringing, but one of the bands you said, please just choose something for me from Gorillaz. Why do you like Gorillaz? Oh, um, I think they're a great mix of, I mean, if you think about who they are, they are essentially an immersed reality. Like they were Web3 before Web3 was the thing, mm -hmm. um, right? They were essentially, and so they have a lot of this tech uh, with a lot of this music that I love. Well, their new album comes out in February. Here's the title single, Cracker Island, featuring Thundercat on KRCL. On Cracker Island, it was born. Ah, the new gorillas featuring Thundercat. Cracker Island on KRCL 90.9. It's on the Meet Your Maker playlist tonight with my guest, and that's Eric Lowe, CEO and co-founder of Credo Incorporated, a plant tech startup right here in Utah in Salt Lake City. And that's where I want to go next, Eric, is how you leave behind this day job that you have, and you do it in 2020 in the start of a pandemic. So what is Credo, first of all? And I love the, one of the taglines you have, which is, so you've killed a few plants, have you? Everyone struggles with that. Yeah, so Credo, um, if you believe it or not, started out as a blockchain company in 2018. And I thought I came up with a, a blockchain that was a new tech, right, with crypto and everything. And I thought in my head, oh, blockchain and electronic health records would be the next biggest thing. Then we spent a whole year exploring every single idea in blockchain. and kind of realized like, oh, I, the tech isn't there or the industry isn't quite ready for it. Um, and so while sitting there on a brainstorming session with my team, um, on, the, on my own, I was already building this tech. And the reason why was I was struggling to keep my plants alive. And with my background uh, being in a lab and biotech, uh, it's kind of humbling. You know, I was like, I'm taking care of things that are like way more harder to take care of than these things. Like what's going on here? Um, and so, you know, followed all the instructions I found online and was like quickly found like this is all largely anecdotal or generic and it's not taking into account um, so many variables um, that I can't control for. And so I was, you know, I was measuring water runoff, I was measuring pH, TDS levels, 
and my plant was still sick. And I'm like, cool, what's These wrong? These are house plants we're talking yeah. about, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like light, it's food, it's it's temperature, it's... All sorts of things. And mm-hmm. it literally was happy months ago. And now all now of a sudden, not. not. And you're like, what changed? I didn't change anything. Yeah. Um, and so what I wanted was like, I need data real time from the soil because there's something happening um, that I'm not aware of um, in a moment of time. And then when I do check up on you, it's too late, right? I'm yeah. reading the symptoms and you've been sick for quite some time. So I built the sensor, and this is uh, when I was actually getting my master's in computer science, and so this is like a perfect project to do at the same time. And so I built them, and then I thought, oh, there's got to be a database out there that has all this information for me to just load into the sensors, and job's done. Um, and so as I'm tinkering, I'm looking for this, that kind of brought on two couple big things. One, um, a lot of people struggle with taking care of their plants, and then two, these databases don't quite exist they don't talk to each other there's no analysis going on uh well we have a lot of taxonomic information but not a lot of growth condition information and so that was really curious to me because i thought we collect data on everything in the world how is plants something we've been studying forever yeah. uh so seemingly empty with data yeah i'm used to something like iNaturalist, which i can take a picture of a plant while i'm out walking it can tell me what it is but beyond how to do it at my house with that plant nothing yeah, exactly. And so that's a data set that's missing. Um, and so I started asking, why? Why is this data missing? And that's where I saw um, s- um, similarities with my old world, right? And the answer quickly came down to, oh, it's because research is expensive. Mm-hmm. R&D is expensive. And if R&D is expensive, then you always revert back to the money makers. As a company, that's you always, always, I saw it. I felt it in the biotech company I was for, right? We were paid the least. We were um, we were the most um, easily like removed, um, and it was simply because you know depending on where you're, the company is like if the product's been made, then we don't really need R and D anymore, right? Yeah. Um, but that's a big oversight, especially when it comes to plants, because of what's uh, already here, right? Climate change is here, our planet's quickly changing, a lot of problems are here, and when we're asked what are the solutions, to me the answer is pretty simple: it's plants. Mm-hmm. It's what was here before. What We were the ones that destroyed it and re- destroyed the ecosystems. We just need to simply restore it back. Um, but the question is how, and then how do you get it back without the amount of time it normally takes to get it back, right? Um, yeah. That's not quite the luxury we have anymore. Um, and so that, to me, I saw a lot of big problems and a really big opportunity for us now of like, oh, so now what if we take this concept of, okay, everyone struggles with plants. The data doesn't exist. R&D is expensive. How do we solve these three big problems? And mm-hmm. the idea was, well, what if we designed a product that was just good, as good as precision agriculture's, um, but it's going to be a lot cheaper because it's going to be made for consumers. So that's another big uh, problem, right, is if there's no competitors within an industry, then they can just charge whatever they want. Um, so we want to bring the price points down. And then once we did that, then it was, oh, what if we democratized plant research? What if we just rethought how research was done completely like why does it have to be in a lab why can it yeah, be so you're done crowdsourcing that. yeah why can it be done and we've seen technologies anytime it gets crowdsourced is a better version than the version uh that a business can build right it's always going to be better because you have more brains uh involved and you have more data involved and so that was the idea and that was the really now final form of credo um, we're still, you know, there's still little details in there, but that's the biggest thing is like, oh, so Creta is a plant data company. And the way we're going to get all that data is with our plant care system leaflet. And leaflet will help everyone understand what their plants are uh, needing and what they, um, uh, yeah, what they need and what they want. Um, but you're also actively a plant scientist for the world now. That's kind of cool. It makes you feel like you're part of a bigger community. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you're taking care of your plants. Now, credo, does that word mean anything? Yeah, so it's based off the word credo, and which is based off the word creed, which is belief, right? And so we believe that anyone should be able to grow anything anywhere. I love it. So you've also then engineered these sensors, and there's a monthly subscription. Uh, some creativity involved in designing what these sensors are, so they're aesthetically pleasing. You said Steve Jobs is one of your heroes. So are you taken to that part of it? You brought some gamers online to help you? Absolutely. Um, No, so everything we touch with Credo, right, we're a startup, which means we have the luxury to reevaluate how everything's done. And so we did that. We did that from, you know, for me, I love 3D printing, and I got into it very early on. And it's been promised as the next phase of manufacturing, right? And so when we looked, we're like, well, where's 3D printing? How close is that future? 
it doesn't really seem like anyone's really pushing that future um, at all, that narrative, right? And it's because, again, bottom line. And so for us, it's like, oh, well, if we pave the way forward uh, for um, 3D additive manufacturing at scale, then other people will follow suit. And so we did that. So all of our sensors are 3D printed with biodegradable plastic. Then we also thought about the business model and how e-waste is handled, right? I am so sick and tired of not knowing what to do with my old generation iPhone, my last generation MacBook. I have so much electronic hardware accumulating in my attic simply because it still works and I don't want it to end up in a landfill, but I really have no, it's worth zero. No one's going to buy it. Um, and it's just, but it's like, for me, I'm like, there's valuable stuff in here, right? There's yeah. lithium, there's like raw metal, there's all sorts of stuff in here that's we but need. But how does the consumer recycle exactly. that? Exactly. And so we rethought the business model and how hardware should be handled in today's world or in the future, right? And in my opinion, it shouldn't be handled. It shouldn't be the consumer's responsibility. You get to use it, enjoy it. It's my responsibility to, because I'm the one that manufactured it. I know how to process it my job to make it as sustainable and eco-friendly as possible. And so we design our sensors to last and be repairable, which is really, like you think about it, um, the opposite business model of all of our other um, competitors or companies, right? Yeah. Where it's got planned obfuscation or plant, not obfuscation, planned obsolescence yes, in place. Yes, planned obsolescence. Um, we're the opposite. Yeah. We're all about like, let's keep things out of landfill and yeah. in use as long as possible. So there's two parts to your sensor that goes into a house plant, right? Yeah, so there's the main unit that contains the radio battery, um, you know, most of the expensive stuff, and then the probe that's uh, responsible for measuring the moisture and other parts. And so which one of those gets replaced on a regular basis? Um, none. They're none? all serviceable, right? And okay. so we know the probe is going to be the most um, consumable simply because it's in a wet environment um, and there is going to be just a pro degradation process that we can't do anything about. But we are taking extra effort in engineering the entire device to be as repairable as possible, right? Mm -hmm. um, this is where my team is spending a ton of time reevaluating different types of glues, epoxies, and gaskets, and all of the different materials just to purely ensure that our product is sustainable as possible. You've also taken time with your packaging so that it can be recycled. Absolutely. It's etched as opposed to printed. Exactly. So yeah, we're one of the first to have no, we're ink-free packaging, right? So all of our packaging is laser etched. Um, and same thing, when I went to our industrial design team, uh, Hatch Duo, I you know was like, what are all the sustainable options we have today? Mm -hmm. And so we, got, we saw a lot of cool stuff. We saw things, packaging made from mushrooms, packaging made from corn, all this stuff. But unfortunately, it's crazy expensive. And there's, again, scale problems, yeah. right? Yeah. The many, uh, mushroom packaging was made on demand. Yeah. So they literally grew that and then would give it to you, you know? <laughs> you and you're go. like, oh, that's crazy. Uh -huh. um, and so for us, though, it, the problem wasn't the sustainability. Like, cardboard's very recyclable, right? Mm -hmm. um, the problem was the ink that's on it. Yeah. That clogs the whole thing up and then, and mm -hmm. then makes the whole process a lot harder. So you're really thinking holistically about everything that you create, but you also are thinking, okay, sustainability, I want to be good to the environment. Um, so you really kind of stepped back from it. I take it you've learned a lot of that from, you know, your day job that you used to have, but you've also learned about how to hire people because of the experience that you had. So you've applied a uh, creative lens on that as well to change who comes into your company. Yeah, yeah. So this is probably like a problem of mine, right? I'm trying to rethink and disrupt every single aspect of everything we do. And then sometimes I question myself like, what am I doing? Like this, I don't need to make life harder. It's already pretty hard right now. Uh, but yeah. But this is your first startup too, Exactly, right? yeah. You know, you're like, an let's, entrepreneur. Let's redo everything. Yeah. So yeah, exactly with hiring. Um, I always hated how it's been done traditionally, yeah. right? You have the resumes, you have all these interviews. And for me, it's just like you're wasting both parties' time. You're wasting the company's time. You're wasting the employee's time. And, and you see, and then you see all these like, uh, there's like a whole industry that gets created on literally how to get a job at like Facebook yeah, or, um, or Meta, sorry, uh, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and that to me is like that now you're just gaming the system because the ah. a system has been created. Right. And for me, it's always been, I want top talent, yeah. but top talent can either be acquired or top talent can be created. And yeah. I'm more on the, let's create top talent. So especially me, given what you've gone through. Yeah, absolutely. And give everyone. So for me, when I, evaluate people, I don't really care too much about where you came from, what you've done. Um, those are great, right? You should be proud of proud of that. But it's more of what would you like to do now? What mm -hmm. would you like to be challenged with going into the future? And what are things that 
you would like to learn and be um, challenged with. And that's to me then like, okay, then I'll find a place for you in the company that can give you those challenges. Well, Eric, thanks so much for spending some time with us. It just flew by. Credo, we'll put a link in the show notes. You can check out Credo and you can get to the root of the problem with the Leaflet program. Um, I do want to close though with what your outlet is for creativity outside of, of your startup. And you're a musician. You were classically trained as a piano player, pianist, and you've got trophies and everything. But at 18, something switched in your brain about what, how you approached music. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, the switch was someone just asked, why don't I ever write my own? And it finally dawned on me that I've been playing piano competitively for 15 years and never once did anyone offer Let's spend some time writing some music because, you know, that's kind of the point of music yeah. uh, is to create and um, make something new, not just play other people's. And that's when it hit me really hard of like, oh, wow, like actually I hated piano up to that point. Yeah. I had zero passion for it. You started and, at five. Yep. And at 18, you're like, I don't want to do it this way anymore. Yep. And that's when I the creativity really unlocked music for me, right? And that's when I realized like, yeah, I mean, this is great. I have foundational training in music theory and uh, music, and but then I can learn any instrument I wanted. So I started playing guitar um, and that just led to even more, you know, fun um, fun outlets. And, and that really, and then, you know, in college at the U of U, that's when I started the Acoustic Guitar Club and I was trying to teach people music. And then, and then that just, blossomed into the next thing I knew I was actually the radio host for the Utah uh, University of Utah radio station um KU I, yep KU yeah exactly and I was also now uh getting concerts planned and everything yeah. and I that was really my first entrepreneurial endeavor right of something that I was passionate about and yeah. you can see it just completely grow organically on its own without any forced um, energy on my part and and so yeah so my creative outlets definitely still music i love mm-hmm. playing it and right now i'm trying to get better at the harmonica at the harmonica yeah sweet and then audio in is something else of yours that's right that's uh my first baby um is audio in recording um and that was a studio or business that was created out of pure passion and zero business expertise <laughs> it's still going it's still going All right, we're going to have to have you back and talk more, maybe have you bring your harmonica down. But we're going to go out with a song by another band you wanted to hear, Run River North. This is slow and steady, but what do you like about them? I love that they are an all-Asian-American band and that they've paved a way and marked territory for themselves in a very, very hard environment to survive. Well, it was a pleasure to meet you. Good luck with Credo and Audio In, and we're going to have to have you back. Yeah, happy to be back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm Laura Jones. This has been Radioactive. We'll see you tomorrow. KRCL 90.9 FM, HD1, Salt Lake City, Ogden, Provo, 96.7 FM in Park City, and on the web at krcl.org.